Hello and welcome to The Pulse. In part two of this week's show, we look at fears that China's financial system is in danger of imploding under a mountain of debt. However, we begin with a look at media issues, including the controversy over the replacement of Mingbao's chief editor, Kevin Lau. But first, Ricky Wong's HKTV has put on hold its plans for free TV and settled for transmission over the mobile network it's bought from China Mobile Hong Kong Corporation, a subsidiary of state-owned China Mobile. So, why is he still facing problems? It seems that more clouds are hanging over Ricky Wong's intention to launch his television channels on the Internet in July this year. The $142 million deal between China Mobile Hong Kong and HKTV was completed on December 20th last year. Two weeks after the transaction, China Mobile Hong Kong's parent company, China Mobile Communications Corporation in Beijing, announced on its website that it was launching an internal probe into whether the deal complied with the parent company's internal management rules and state regulations. Then 這些程序究竟在這次的事件裏面是否有做漏了現在就是今次中移動集團要調查的一個方向。HKTV, which is registered in the British Virgin Islands, says it complies with all Hong Kong's company laws and is legally protected by them within the city. Under the Hong Kong company law, the right to enter into a transaction, provided there is no hanky-panky, there is no uh, bribery involved or no uh, un underselling or uh, selling or the undervalue, the authority rests with the board of directors. Even if the shareholders were to disagree with what the board of directors uh, is doing, they cannot uh, uh, cancel a transaction validly and legally enter into by board of directors. Two days before China Mobile's announcement, Hong Kong's communications authority gave the green light to the transaction ruling that the acquisition does not damage competition within the telecommunications markets. HKTV will provide five channels, including an integrated Cantonese channel and a 24-hour news channel. Its programs will be accessible via personal computers, tablet computers, smartphones and smart TV sets. Ricky Wong's license to broadcast a mobile TV network is effective until August 2025. 
However, the broadcast heavily relied on six transmission stations listed by TVB to China Mobile for its mobile television service. The contract expires on July 6th, and TVB announced this week that it would end the lease. This could strike a heavy blow to Wong's plan to launch on July 1st. TVB says it has acted according to the contract, giving a six-month notification to HKTV. Wong says that the communications authority should be responsible for coordinating the use of transmission stations. Uh, China Mobile do hold some of these uh, transmission stations of their own, and these ownership are being going to be transferred to uh, Hong Kong TV. Then they may already have some. And whether or not, you know, what are the capacity? Is it going to be enough time for them to uh, expand these uh, coverage of these transmitting stations to uh, make up for the loss, let's say, of the TVB's uh, transmitting station's contribution? Now, that is a very technical issue that I don't think we have the uh, information about. Under the law, I think the, the authority has the power to investigate and to stop TVB from doing this because the, the, the transmission towers strictly speaking, are not owned by TVB alone. They obtained the site to build the transmission tower because the government allowed them to do so. It is based on public resources. The, the tower is to serve the people of Hong Kong, serve the interests of the people of Hong Kong. During the initial controversy over the government's refusal to give HKTV a license, the Mingbao Daily played a major role in revealing some of the behind-the-scenes dealing that had contributed to that decision. Now, the chief editor, Kevin Lau, has been relieved of his post, and some think they see a connection. Kevin Lau, who's been the chief editor of Mingpao Daily since 2012, was appointed to a new position within the Mingpao Group on Monday. Chong Tian Xiong, former editor of the group's Malaysian paper, Nanyang Xiang Pao, is expected to replace him as the new Mingpao chief editor. Despite worries by many staff that freedom of the press is under threat, Lau says he accepts the sudden change. The change of the chief editor in Ming Pao is really unusual. The current uh, chief editor is uh, on the job for only two years and he is uh, not. Uh, near entire, uh, retirement age. And so there, there seems to be no real good reason to explain the change. And so people would uh, speculate on other uh, non-editorial uh, uh, reasons. And this is kind of unfortunate. Uh, if you eliminate the uh, so-called normal reasons, and then uh, the, uh, the only thing left might be uh, politically motivated uh, and uh, or something that is not uh, based purely on editorial or news judgment. 90% of Mingpao's editorial staff have signed a petition asking the management to explain the change. Some of people are very shocked and don't know how to react on that uh, because in the last about since handover, we haven't been such kind of a sudden change of uh, chief editor, chief editors. And we would like to know more about what really happened as the company haven't have any announcements on that. 
Some speculate that management dissatisfaction with Kevin Lau is connected to the paper's coverage of the HKTV saga. In October last year, it ran headlines on the station's battles for a free TV licence for at least nine consecutive days. Editorial director Loy Ming is said to have called chief editor Kevin Lau to give advice. The concern group wants to know the details of that call. On Thursday, the CEO of the parent company of Mingpao Media Chinese met editorial directors to explain the change. After that, the editorial directors were supposed to meet frontline editorial staff, but those staff boycotted the meeting. Today's meeting is only uh, the editorial director and the and chief editor, Chelfen, who will be removed, uh, who will be replaced uh, in the future. Uh, to meet the staff and other senior management to meet the staff, so it's not a, it's not what we de- what we want that the senior management of the company to see all the staff and we, which we can have a chance to ask for questions. What worries some is that the proposed incoming chief editor Chong Tianxiong has a track record of friendship with the pro Beijing press. In 2007, he took the Malaysia Media Chinese delegation to visit the Xinhua News Agency. In 2009, he, as the chief editor of Nanyang Xiangpao, signed a collaboration contract with the Wenwei Po. Mingpao staff are considering drawing up a charter of editorial independence with the management. Because this year is a very important year for Hong Kong that there's many uh, significant issues like political uh, developments and there's talking about any Occupy Central's or these uh, issues that are coming. We don't know that uh, whether uh, the new editor can stand with us, share the same values to safeguard uh, uh, the media for the press, for our paper, to do our a good job on that, as we know that we we don't know have we don't have any background or information about the new editor, and uh, will he uh, safeguard uh, the rooms or the space that uh, for news coverage for these sensitive uh, news sensitive issues that we this all our question that we want to know about. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. Is China headed for a debt crisis that could be as devastating as the one that almost toppled world economies in 2008? Some pundits are thinking this way. The reason? China is sitting on a mountain of debt. And to make things worse, it may lack the ability or will to control that debt for political reasons, because it doesn't want to slow down economic growth. In December, for the second time last year, and despite a major cash injection from the government, interbank rates in China surged above 10%. That sent alarm bells ringing, suggesting, as it does, that banks and the overall banking system are facing a major liquidity problem. At the root of that problem is soaring credit, bad debts, and underperforming shadow investments which can't meet promised returns and rising rates. Even by the end of 2012, total lending from banks and other financial institutions in China was double the nation's annual gross domestic product, 
compared with a rate of 125% four years earlier. It has inevitably grown since then. That signals a potentially huge crisis is brewing and that the nation's model of growth driven by bank lending may not be sustainable. While banks have long dominated the country's financial system, accounting for more than 90% of all funding in the economy, over the past five years, the rise of non-bank institutions, especially trust companies, has changed the nature of finance across the country. The boom in shadow banking has been seen by critics as a major risk, helping fuel a surge in debt levels and making credit flows less transparent. Many of the debts are bad debts. Some dubious loans have been given to non-performing, local, government-backed property and infrastructure projects just to curry favour. China's banks claim that non-performing loans account for less than 1% of the total. Almost no one outside China believes that. That's because rather than admit loans have gone bad and recording a loss in their accounts, the banks routinely extend or restructure them, or sell them. To avoid a crisis of confidence, the government has long been discouraging reporting on the problem, both internally and externally. But this week, news media reported a new guideline issued by China's cabinet or state council called a notice about some issues related to strengthening shadow banking regulation. The State Council's guidelines describe shadow banking as a beneficial and inevitable consequence of financial development. However, the document identifies three kinds of shadow banks to be closely monitored in the future. But with loans underpinning not only China's apparent economic growth, but also the entrenched positions of state-run companies and political projects, many are skeptical that reforms will actually have any teeth. Well, with us in the studio are Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Albert Cheng, Associate Director of Quamnet Research. Francis Lund, Hi, good I, morning. Good morning. Can I come to you first? Yes. Um, we, 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 we've just seen that people are extremely sceptical yeah. as to whether China will in, would be able to rein in these mm -hmm. bad debts and the yeah. illegal banking, etc., etc. Uh, are you one of the skeptics? Uh, I think they are really serious this time because uh, under uh, Wen Jiabao, uh, they always said they would uh, do something. But actually, within the past two years, I think uh, uh, the lending uh, in shadow banking actually proliferated something like double uh, from uh, 2010. So and it, it, it has become such a huge factor in the economy of China that nobody can ignore it because uh, if you ignore it, it will explode like an atomic bomb like the American uh, uh, debt crisis in 2008. So I think they are really serious in trying to control the bubble because uh, I think uh, it's this week or yesterday, uh, the central bank requested the banks to submit data on 12 items, 12 off-balance sheet items like uh, uh, guarantees, uh, 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 asset management, and things like that. They, they want to expose what other uh, lending or 
or off-sheet balance sheet, off balance sheet items that the banks actually have, mm. and so that they can well, they take a measure. Know, do they? they? They don't know exactly because even after the the census, they said uh, nationally the uh, the government that is something like thirty trillion. Remember, but how much of that is shadow banking? Nobody can give you an exact figure. Maybe we can tell you the size of the shadow banking. According to all detailed um, figures, they say that the shadow banking uh, size about uh, three trillion US dollar, or almost thirty-six percent of the China GDP. Uh, but some analysts may think that the actual figures could be up to six trillion. US dollar, so that it means that around seventy percent of the GDP. So that I agree with uh, Francis' view that the problem should be uh, considered by the government. But do you, do you think we get um, fixated by debt? I mean, you look at the, <laughs> the American economy; hardly an example of an economy free of debt. Yet yeah, it's well, roaring away. Well, I, I, I think I think what any responsible government should do is really try to prevent something become a serious problem that you will hurt uh, 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 people for a generation to come, like what uh, Europe and America already done, is that uh, they make the future generations for 100 years to pay the debt of today's profligacy. I think you cannot live beyond your means. I think it is easy for governments to just issue debt and so that you can placate your voters or your citizens to keep dissent mm -hmm. under, under the lid. But I think you, you have to know that uh, the uh, previous uh, mode of uh, economic growth is unsustainable, which is mainly by asset investment, meaning in investing, infrastructure yeah, yeah, investing in real estate and infrastructure. <coughs> Sooner or later, all this will become white elephants. Then you have empty buildings and, and uh, useless streets or bridges. You have to invest uh, your money in productive enterprises. Well, well, let's talk about that for a moment because, I mean, debt is one side of the equation. The other thing is economic growth. Obviously, it's slowing yeah, that's in, true. in China. But is it slowing precipitously? Is there really going to be a sharp decline, do you oh, think? Uh, before 2008, uh, strong demand from Europe and U.S. actually boosted the exports from China. As you know, China is an export-oriented economy. Now, uh, some slowdown from Europe and U.S. and some factory we, uh, relocate to Vietnam. So that the problem is that the China has to rely on internal consumption and FAI, the fixed assets investments. So that um, we think that. Uh, a China economy may have chance to uh, moderate, may probably to six to seven percent in coming years. Six to seven percent growth. Yes, yeah, growth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Francis, what's yeah. your view on that? I, I think along the same way because uh, uh, when you have uh, concentrate on fixed investment, you have duplicate investment and then wasteful investment. Uh, one of the mo most glaring example is the steel mill they're going to uh, uh, set up in Jamgong which uh, will cost something like 30 billion uh, uh, RMB, figure. Uh, which is <coughs> absolutely useless because China already has excess capacity in steel making. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is really cut like one third of the steel making capacity in China and then direct the money into, well, 
actually is it pays more to just give the money directly to people so that they can spend. It, does does any of this in your mind mean that there's a, a really bad outcome looming? Uh, actually, it's very interesting because, as you know, uh, since uh, two one three, the central government is undergoing the anti-corruption policy. So that, um, they now suppress the local government activities so that they uh, have to control the spending and probably they have to control the property market. So that um, uh, how to deal with the shadow banking is very important. So if um, the everything go masses, it may cause political uh, uncertainty. So that I think that Beijing uh, is unlikely to see such a scenario to happen. Right, well, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. I'm afraid we're out of time. And that's it for us for this week's show. We'll see you at the same time next week. Until then, it's goodbye from us. I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been. Been hoping that you drop so in. I'll hold your hands, they're just like ice. My mother will start to.